Friends, here we go. I hope you're well. hope you're feeling inspired, motivated, and full of beans wherever you are. It's an absolute delight to have you with me here today for another episode of the Plant Proof Podcast. For new listeners, my name is Simon Hill, physiotherapist, currently finishing my master's in nutrition and host of this show. Each week, I get to sit down with super cool folks from all walks of lives, doctors, nutritionists, athletes, people who have overcome chronic illness and much more to have conversations that can help us become more mindful and conscious of the way that we live. Today, I sat down with Adam Sud, a tremendously inspiring young man who overcame drug dependence, disordered eating, and chronic disease. Adam now shares his story in hope that he can help people in a similar situation to where he found himself. Rock bottom, suicidal, feeling hopeless, and in need of serious help. This is a story of personal triumph, a story of self-love, a story of love in general, love for himself, love for his family, and love for life. Whether you are experiencing some or all of this, or know someone who is, Adam's insight and words of wisdom are both shocking and comforting at the same time. Before we hear from Adam, I wanted to give you a bit of an update from my end. I've been doing some hard thinking lately. I don't like talking about myself at the best of times, but I think there is an important underlying message here. From the outside, many would assume my life is all but sorted. I have it good. I travel the world. I live in Bondi. I own a beautiful apartment with a rooftop overlooking the ocean. I have investment properties in multiple states, rah, rah. Who cares? I still wake up and wonder what I'm going to be doing in the future that's going to fill my life with purpose and meaning. I don't know what I'll be doing in one year, five years, or 10 years. I mean, 18 months ago, I didn't even really use social media. Certainly wasn't on it every day. I didn't even really know what a podcast was. And I didn't think I'd be writing a book with Penguin. Don't get me wrong, I love my life, but I still have the uncertainty about my future that many of you probably have. You see, the possessions and tangible things, they mean, they mean nothing to me. So the old throwaway phrase, oh, if it all goes pear-shaped, at least I'll have my apartment, it doesn't work for me. I need more than that. I'm searching for something deeper, something more meaningful. I don't know what it is, but I do know, I feel like I've just started a, a new chapter of my life and I am truly excited by this sense of unknown. And something is guiding me and I'm just going to go with it. Anyway, point being, I thought I always had it figured out. I thought I always had to know what my future looked like. And now I'm, I'm learning, I'm coming to grips with this idea that no, it's actually okay to have no idea and to just show up, do your best every day and see what happens. Okay, that's enough rambling. Time to get into the episode. I 
can't wait to share this one with you. Give it up for Adam Sir. Adam Sud, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Thank you so much, man. I'm really, really excited to be here. I'm such a huge fan <laughs> of the show and everything you do. Mate, I'm, well, I'm a big fan of what, of what you do, but I'm going to be honest and open here and, sure. and say that I've heard how tremendously powerful your story is, but I have purposely not gone into the fine details and have purposely not read or listened to too much because I wanted to save it for when we could connect in person. So oh, here we are. Yeah, yeah thanks, man. I, I appreciate it. And we're here in in Venice, yeah, right. But you're from you're from Texas, right? Oh, yeah, I'm from I'm from Texas, uh, seventh generation Houston Texan. But my brother lives here, and I, I was here for a little while. We'll get into that in my yeah. story, but yeah, sure. You you probably can't tell from my accent, but I actually learned to speak in Texas. What? And I had a southern accent. Yeah. What do you mean you learned to speak in Texas? So when when I was about. 18 months old, right? My family, we moved from Melbourne to Texas. And I lived in the United States for eight years. We okay. lived in College Station. Do you know where that yeah, is? Yeah, where A&M is. Yeah, A&M. So my dad was working at A&M. Oh, okay. So there you go. So but you're an Aggie. I'm an Aggie. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Can we be friends? Or? <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll be friends. It's fine. <laughs> uh, so how long are you actually in LA for? Uh, I leave tomorrow morning. Okay. Yeah. So I came in, um, not yesterday, I got in Thursday night and, um, just been hanging with my brother and with Robbie, who you now know. And, um, yeah, just been having some fun. I had Robbie, Robbie on the show and Cyrus the other day. He's, he's such a laugh. Right. I know they're, they're I mean, they're both awesome, aren't they? They're amazing. And they're, they're just so purpose driven. You could see, I could see it in their eyes during that conversation, just how, how important they take what they're doing. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's it's just a great a great thing to see and to witness. I can't wait to see how you know mastering diabetes grows. And you're a part of mastering diabetes, I so am. no doubt we're going to jump into everything that you're doing there as well. Let's go back to your time sure. in, in Texas. I mean, growing up, what was what was life like for you as a kid? Were you part of a, a typical Texan family? Even for the Australian listeners, perhaps just describe what life is like in Texas. Sure. So I grew up, I was born in Houston, Texas, which is the largest city in Texas. I mean, it's also one of the largest cities in the United States. I think it's in the top five largest cities in the United States, but I'm a, I'm a Texas Jew. So I grew up, you know, with these two kind of really extreme cultural uh, heritage. One is being a Texan. So like the burgers and barbecue, and the other is the Jewish part, which is like the bagels and blintzes. And I had a really great childhood. I did. My dad was a high school basketball player and then became a marathoner in college. So sports were, was a big thing for him. And he got me into sports and I played little league baseball. I played basketball with my friends after school. I played basketball in middle school, played football in middle school. But, you know, interestingly enough, with all this incredible love and support from my mom and my dad, I was criticized quite a lot. And I think the reason might be that when my dad was 25 years old, his father passed away from colon cancer. From my understanding of the situation, the time from which his diagnosis occurred to his death was relatively short. And I think that the trauma of watching his father's health decline and losing his father in such a traumatic way that my dad becomes very fearful when he sees people that he loves engaging in behaviors that he believes are detrimental to their health. And their well-being. Protective. Very protective. Uh, and 
and again, I, you know, this is my perception of what uh, I think occurred. But the other thing is that when my dad becomes fearful, he becomes hypercritical. And with all the best intentions in the world, I was criticized a lot for wanting to eat, you know, unhealthy junk food. And I'm using air quotes on a podcast, but. Um, Sorry, we got, and, the, we got the cameras rolling. Too. And I didn't understand why it was an issue. It was confusing. A lot of these foods were in our house. And so talk, talk me through what sort of foods. So, you, you know, like the, fr- you know, I grew, I grew up in the eighties. So the fruit roll-ups, the fruity pebbles, the Oreos, Cheerios. The fig, yeah. The fig Newtons, yeah. the, the, you know, the, I was getting, the I mean, I was, I was in Texas around the same, yeah. same time. I was getting the packaged, the packaged high sugar, high fat junk foods. And which is like, it's the norm. Yeah, right, exactly. For the American family. Yeah, very much so. I saw what seemed to be very easy for other people to avoid these foods, eat them only in, you know, in moderation, whatever that means. And for me, it was just not possible. And I was nine, 10 years old at this time when this really started happening, I would be criticized because it would, you know, if you eat this, you're going to get fat. Uh, You're going to, you know, so I I began to develop a very negative self-image. Talk to me through that criticism. I mean, was your was your dad involved in, in also in, in purchasing that those foods and bringing them into the household? Like, how did how did that sort of? Yeah. Um, I mean, my mom did most of the grocery shopping, but you know, my dad liked to indulge every now and then in some of the you know the 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 packaged stuff. And but it, for him, it was very easy. Be like once a week, he'd have like a bite of something. But he was a okay. salad guy. So he was just saying that you, you probably shouldn't be eating too much of that. Too much of it. Yeah. And of course, I mean, it would have been my best interest not to. Um, but I thought that it was because there was something wrong with me, that there was something broken about me that, that was allowing me not to be able to stop, you know, wanting to eat these foods all the time. And I, I started to, um, I started to be a closet eater by like age 10. I would, you know, in the morning, uh, we would have breakfast and my mom would, you know, go to her room or the other side of the house to go, you know, do whatever she was doing in the morning. I would grab all this extra food from the kitchen. I would run into my bedroom and I'd turn off the light. I'd shut the door and I'd sit in the corner and I'd eat it as fast as I could. I'd do it because I was so afraid that at any minute the door was going to open, the light was going to come on, and my mom was going to see me for exactly what I was, which was this broken, scared child who was everything they didn't want him to be. So is this is this looking back on 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 that now and yeah. sort of understanding it or at the time were you very much conscious of that and, and the way that you felt? I knew I was afraid of being seen. I didn't, you know, I wasn't fully capable of understanding the situation. I don't know why I was afraid, why I felt the need to hide this. I just knew that I needed to. I didn't know the motivation. I didn't know that it was this that that this was really their disapproval of it was not about who I was as a person. It was about behavior. They were afraid. And so I felt, well, fine, I'll hide the behavior and then the fear will be gone and they'll love me because they'll only know what they see. And I was so desperate to be accepted completely. And, you know, I, I truly felt like there was something inherently broken in myself. And so this, this behavior of hiding parts of me that were not accepted by the rest of the world became a trend throughout my life. And it wasn't, it wasn't that far after that or that long after that, that I was diagnosed by a doctor with attention deficit disorder. And I was taken to a doctor. And now this, is one, this isn't what the doctor actually said, but essentially I have a doctor, a white coat, a man uh, uh, who's standing over me, who I'm supposed to say, this guy is going to tell and You're me. about 10 years old. About 10, 12 years old. And he says, you know, essentially there's something about you that doesn't work properly and that the rest of the world doesn't agree with. 
Um, I was getting in trouble in school because again, I was not acting up, but wasn't paying attention. I would, you know, talk to kids during class. So that's just sort of like almost confirming yeah. those fears that you, exactly. you already had. And then I was told to take this pill, Ritalin. And if I took it, no one would ever know there's anything wrong with me. It was going to hide the things about me that were not accepted by others. And the minute I understood this, I had this understanding that as long as there were things that were wrong with me, I could find a substance outside of myself to hide it or fix it because ADHD was a broken part in me. Suppress it. Exactly. And for the listeners, Ritalin, do you want to just describe? Because yeah, so Ritalin- I mean, it's used for a bunch of things like right. narcolepsy and, yeah. and whatnot. Maybe just so- describe. As a child of the 80s and early 90s, I was part of what is a lot of people call the Ritalin generation, um, where an ADHD was rapidly being diagnosed through a, a variety of different symptoms. And ADHD is a stimulant form of medication to control attention deficit disorder. It also, it's also used to treat narcolepsy because it is a stimulant. It will keep you up. It is essentially a medically pure form of methamphetamine. And it's a very mild amount of it, uh, uh, mild potency and it's it's you know compared to like a, a drug like say cocaine yeah it's it's a slower act in terms slower of acting. Know, increasing dopamine and exactly like that, right yeah and it works you know i mean it, it does treat the symptom it doesn't doesn't treat the cause but it does treat the symptom of the uh, of of allowing me to hyper focus on the things and so there it was this doctor and this diagnosis confirming for me this belief that here i am this sort of person with broken parts that has to be fixed with pills or either fix what's broken or hide what's broken. And then we moved to Austin, Texas, right before I started high school. And I had actually, I was really into drama as a kid. And I, and I auditioned for this school in Houston called the high school for the performing and visual arts. I think like 300 people auditioned, they take 30 people and I got accepted and I was so excited about it. And then I'm told after I, I, after I had auditioned and after I had been accepted, my parents told me that we were actually moving to Austin. I wouldn't be going to school there. I have to start high school not knowing anybody. And I was really, really, I mean, it hurt. It hurt a lot because I had invested so much of my hopes and my dreams into this. This is something that I really wanted. And then it was just, you know, your dreams don't matter. You know, we're going to do what we want to do. And you're just going to come with us. And I don't fault them for it, obviously, you know. But I started high school not knowing anybody, not having any friends, battling these feelings of low self-worth. And I remember at that time, Adderall had just come out or maybe not just come out, but my prescription had just been replaced with Adderall, which is a stronger form of stimulant-based medication to treat ADHD. And in the generic form, if you were to go get a a bottle right now at a pharmacy of generic Adderall, it'll say amphetamine salt. Wow. Because it's an amphetamine salt tablet. It's literally medically pure amphetamine. That's what this stuff is. So, so when that came out, were, were doctors sort of rolling kids off of Ritalin? That's what that? happened in my case. Yeah. And I know that that was a common thing because Adderall worked. It was much more effective than, than Ritalin. And what are the side effects of these, these drugs? Well, in the long term, it does cause dependency. You're going to be dependent upon it in order to, you know, sort of get that willpower, that, that drive to accomplish tasks. You're going to get uh, adrenal fatigue. You're going to, uh, if, if someone is on it for a while and then they stop taking it, they'll be tired a lot. Um, and then there's a lot more horrible side effects that come from abuse of it. 
hard damage. You can, uh, you know, there's a lot of mental disorders. So to take taking it above the recommended yeah. dosage. Yep. Actually abusing the, the substance. And um, I didn't have any friends. I had a few friends. And the, the few friends that I had, I remember I was invited to a party. And I was about to come to leave and I get a call. And it was my friend. And he said, Adam, will you bring your prescription of Adderall with you? And at the time, I was not aware of the of being able to abuse it for recreational purposes. And, and here I was, I didn't have a lot of friends and I wanted so badly to be accepted. So of course, yeah, of course I'll bring it. Why? I want to be a value to other people. I want to be the person that everyone's wants there. So if I can supply that need, you bet I'm going to bring it. And I did. And I went there and I'm going to tell you, man, the first time I used Adderall as a recreational drug, oh my goodness, I found the answer to everything that was wrong in my life. It fixed everything. I was slightly overweight because I was late to start puberty. And Adderall, as I mentioned, is an amphetamine. And when you're on higher amounts of amphetamine, you have no appetite. And I had boundless energy. I felt so confident, so superhuman. I would talk to anybody without concern. And anything that they were talking about was immediately interesting to me. So I would be able to engage in conversation with what everyone else wanted to talk about and be you know, genuinely excited to talk about it. My work ethic or lack thereof was a problem with my dad and I. He and I would get into constant arguments about my work ethic not being up to standard. Man, when I was on Adderall, that was taken care of. I could focus. I could get my work done. So my relationship with my dad got better. As I mentioned, uh, you know, I, uh, I didn't have a lot of friends. Well, this was solving it. I was making friends like, like crazy. It really worked for me. I thought that this magic pill was magically fixing everything that was wrong with me and with my life. And so the more I took of it, the more of the person I thought I was supposed to be, I was able to become. And it really worked. I lost the weight. I, you know, my relationship with my dad was amazing. I had friends. I had girlfriends. I got a scholarship to the college I wanted to go to. This drug was doing everything I needed it to do for me and more so. My life was perfect. So I thought. And, uh, in college, things just really took a turn for the worse because I was abusing it constantly and my tolerance was going through the roof. And it got to a point to where more was not enough and I was quick, quickly running out of it. And the biggest concerns in my life were always related to Adderall. It was how much do I have left? How long will it last? Where will I get more? How much will it cost? And, you know, how am I going to get away with it? Where am I going to get the money to pay for it? Paint the picture. What, what, what's the recommended dosage and what were you taking? So the recommended dosage is usually somewhere between five milligrams to 30 milligrams, right? And so I would say that probably the last five to, five to 10 years of my addiction, I was doing 450 milligrams in a 24-hour period. Wow. Yeah. It got really out of hand. And I mean, how, how was that happening in terms of from a prescription point of view with it, where doctors sort yeah. of saying that you were going through your scripts far too quickly? Well, they weren't because I was doctor shopping. So I would have multiple doctors prescribing me the same medication without them knowing about each other. And that's a felony. Um, wow. So there's not a central database or anything that is not tracking at the time. It. Not at the time. Now there is. Yeah. Um, and then I had, you know, uh, I was buying from people in college and it got so out of hand. My need for the drug became so paramount to everything else in my life that I dropped out of college. I moved back to Austin where I knew the dealers, I knew the doctors that I could scam. And I ended up becoming a criminal drug addict. 
you you mentioned that it it suppressed your appetite. Yeah. Right. Is that so? It's it's it yeah. suppresses your appetite, it similar to any sort of amphetamine, mm-hmm. and that's how you you lost some weight. So yeah. so were you, you were overweight at that time of your life? No, you weren't I was, overweight. I was like 170 pounds at that time. Yeah. Well, um, up until I dropped out of college, I ended up moving back to Austin. Became this criminal drug addict. Where I was buying from people. I was dealing dealing to people. I was you know robbing and stealing from people. I was forging all Adderall. All Adderall or cocaine or any form of stimulant I can get my hands on. I was buying from sites that were illegal on the internet. I was doing some really shady things. What's, what sort of webs like the um? What's that website called? The 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 one that where the guy he was using bitcoins. I went to high school with him. Is that the kind of websites we're talking about? Yeah, stuff like that. There's, yeah. a, there's a movie coming out, I think, on that. Yeah, I actually went to high school with that guy. Wow. But um, it got to the point to where I was doing so much all the time that a prescription or the amount that I was getting would only last me six days. So I would do 450 milligrams in a 24-hour period for six days straight without sleeping and without eating. I would end up in the throes of a drug-induced psychosis where I would end up having to pop painkillers in order to fall asleep. It was really bad. I would start hallucinating. I would start hearing things that weren't there. I would get really paranoid. I developed these incredibly invasive, obsessive compulsive tics, one of which was I couldn't stand to feel the hair touch my ear. And I remember one night staying up all night long, brushing my hair forward and back, forward and back so hard for so long that when I went to the bathroom in the morning, all the hair was brushed off the side of my head. It was completely bald. And I had become increasingly depressed, uh, very, very isolated. Um, I was only treating, seeing my parents either get things or money from them or to blame them or shame them for everything that was wrong in my life. And I developed a secondary dependency to fast food because I, when I didn't have the drugs, there'd be two week stints where I would just binge obsessively on fast food to where I would get up every single morning and I would go to this place called Torchy's Tacos and I would get like four potato and cheese breakfast tacos. Then I'd go to McDonald's and get two supersized double quarter pounder meals and then immediately after that, go to this place called Whataburger and get their extra large honey barbecue chicken strip sandwich meal with the fries and the this soda. Is all one after the other. After one that. after the other. And then I would have for dinner an extra large pizza from Papa John's with the sausage on the top and a side of the chicken strips with the honey mustard dipping sauce. Then at like three in the morning, I go back to Whataburger for their breakfast on a bun sandwiches with sausage. And during the course of that day, I'd probably drink about 20 sodas. Talk, talk, talk to me through this because, you know, Someone that hasn't dealt with being overweight and having, right. you know, disordered eating, it, it could be very hard to sort of understand how you could do that. Yeah. What was going through your mind and ultimately why did you feel that you needed just to keep eating, keep eating, keep eating? I believe it comes down to the fact that showing up for my life was too painful. And this was a distraction that gave me pleasure. These foods created such a pleasure response that sort of numbed me up and would allow me to sort of like just eat copious amounts of food that would sort of overwhelm my senses, then I'd end up falling asleep. And I sort of like to just sort of numb myself out and sleep for those periods of time until I could finally get more drugs. So I was either high as hell on, on, uh, on amphetamines or just like gorge myself on fast foods that I could go to sleep. And the other thing is that, you know, when I was not eating for six days on amphetamines, when that stops, my hunger drive goes through the roof. So it's almost like I can't stop myself until I get the amphetamines. Then I can finally stop myself from eating. It was this really destructive, vicious cycle 
that would cause me to do things that to myself that made me hate my life even more or cause me to do things to other people to get money and things to buy drugs that made me hate myself even more that made me want to do more drugs that made me want to eat more food and so I mean, I could look back at my life now and go, man, how could I ever treat people that I loved the way that I did? But if you look at the state that I was living in, this horrible, vicious cycle of doing things that made me hate myself, that made me need things to stop hating myself, that caused me to want to do things to stop hating myself. It was just, it was this endless cycle of of psychosis is really what it was. And life was too painful to show up authentically because then I'd have to take an authentic look at what's going on and I just wasn't ready for it. And so I needed some kind of substance to get me out of reality. And my dad came to me, this was about 2009. And I probably reached about 300 pounds at that point. My dad has been a part of Whole Foods Market since the founding. And he comes to me and says, you know, Adam, Whole Foods Market has just partnered with this guy named Rip Esselstyn. And Rip Esselstyn wrote this book called The Engine 2 Diet. And now Whole Foods Market is creating these seven-day programs where you're going to go to this place to like a retreat and spend seven days with Rip and his team to learn how to adopt a plant-based diet to lose weight and get healthy. And I really want you to go. And I'm going to tell you right now, I had no interest in going and listening to this guy. I didn't care who he was. I didn't know who he was. And I sure as shit didn't want to listen to what he had to say. I went because I knew if I did, my dad would keep giving me money. It was all about what can I get for me. So you could keep buying food, keep buying Adderall. I mean, I was broke. If I wasn't getting money from someone, I was going to be homeless in two weeks. So it was, it was more out of desperation. It was. And I went to this immersion. I was high all day long. Every single day I was there. I had copious amounts of drugs on me. What sort of, what kind of drugs did you take? I mean, I had opiates and amphetamines. And, and was Rip and, and these guys, they weren't did a, they see it? No, no. I mean, well, it was very obvious there was something going on with me. I was very diaphoretic. I was always flushed and red faced and sweating. I smelled really toxic. I was very disruptive to be around just to like, if you were near me, you knew something was wrong, severely wrong. Um, in fact, I didn't find this out until years later, but Rip told me that they were getting so many complaints about my appearance and my smell that they were having meetings to, to determine whether or not they were going to remove me from the program. Holy! Wow. And I know that the only reason why I wasn't asked to leave is because if you know Rip and you know the Engine 2 team, Rip only wants to see the good in people. And he believes that the good in people will always outweigh anything that's going on with them in the moment. And I honestly believe that that quality in Rip Esselstyn saved my life because I went to every single lecture and I listened to everything that was being said. I heard luminary doctors like Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, Dr. Michael Clapper, Jeff Novick, these, you know, these pioneering thought leaders that sort of crafted the, 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 what we call preventative lifestyle medicine. I heard people like Doug Lyle and it really did make sense. And it spoke to this core value of mine. You know, I grew up in Texas and connected to nature and I loved animals And here I was being told that not only could I be happy and healthy, but I could do so without harming another living animal. And in fact, it was better for me not to. And uh, there was a guy guy there named uh, Jean-Pierre. He's a fitness trainer. He's been vegan for like over 20 years. And he and I really connected. And he had me, the first night I was there, he had me watch Earthlings. And I couldn't finish it. Um, I remember like just that night watching that film was such a visceral experience. And I told him, I've told him since then, that the most impactful thing that happened to me was watching that film. Um, But the last night of the immersion, 
there was a speaker there named Dick Beardsley. And Dick Beardsley is one of the greatest marathoners of all time. He ran this incredibly famous race against Alberto Salazar in the the, uh, New York Marathon, where both of them broke the previous world record. um, And Alberto Salazar won and Dick Beardsley came in second. His speech was, he talked about that, but really what it was about was after his career as a runner, where he was on his family farm and he got caught up in machinery and he nearly died. And he talked about how he was prescribed painkillers and how he became dependent on painkillers and then how that dependency sort of fueled this disconnection to his life. And then he became addicted to these painkillers. And I listened to him talk about himself and how he moved through the world and how he treated people. And I sat there listening to this guy really just sort of bare his soul saying, this is essentially me. And if ever there's going to be an opportunity for me to go up to somebody and say, I'm struggling with drugs, I'm struggling with food, I'm going to die and I'm scared and I don't know what to do and know that this person won't judge me for it. It's this guy right here. Let this be the opportunity that I walk up to somebody and for the first time ever admit out loud that I need help. And I can remember standing next to his table because he was signing his books and I tried to move closer to him, but my feet were glued to the floor. I wanted to say, just maybe if I just said hello, like hi or whatever, just start talking, then maybe I can work up the courage. And I was truly paralyzed with fear. And I can remember there's this like internal struggle going on that was causing a lot of anxiety. And that moment was very visceral. It was, it was a really intense experience. And I just walked away because I just wasn't desperate. I didn't think that life would be possible without the drugs. And unfortunately, about two years later, um, things just got much worse. My, my weight reached somewhere around 350 pounds. I would have to shop at a, a, a store called Casual Mail XL. Was, again, you know, because it, it can be hard for someone yeah. who hasn't been in that position to sort of be able to relate to this. Sure. What was it like? You know, I can imagine you would have been very self-conscious, right? But, you know, do people, people stare at you? Can you talk us through sure. that? I lived like a hoarder at this point. Um, I lived in an apartment that was covered in fast food garbage and empty pill bottles. And my windows were boarded up because I didn't want people looking in. I didn't want people seeing me. I, the only time I ever left my apartment was to get drugs or food or to go to my parents' house for money or to fight with them. And I would say the most horrible things to my family. My sister hadn't, hadn't spoken to me in over a year at this point. My twin brother was the only person that I would actually be able to have you know, a normal conversation with. But he wasn't even living in Austin at the time. He was in school in Georgia. Did like how? I mean, a lot of people in this sort. Of, I mean, there's studies showing yeah. when people are significantly overweight, they can start to have even suicidal ideations and thoughts. Like, is this yep. something that you yeah. experienced? So I had been battling suicidal thoughts for maybe a year at this point, and I can remember coming home from shopping for clothes at a place called Casual Mail XL because I had a 50 inch waist. And I remember this one night where I went into my bathroom and I took off my shirt and I stared at myself in the mirror. And I'm looking at all of these stretch marks, these rashes, because I wasn't showering for months at a time. I would, uh, I would see these sort of, you know, lumps and, you know, I saw this person in the mirror that I didn't recognize as myself. And I just started beating myself as hard as I could over and over and over again. And every time I hit myself, I'd say to the mirror, I hate you and you're worthless. I started crying. I fell to the floor and I was swollen from these, this beating that I just inflicted on myself because I knew that no matter how hard I hit myself, no matter how much I hated myself, I was never going to win this battle. And I had a phone call with my brother that night. And I said, you know, Bobby, 
my brother and I are incredibly close. And I said, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with me because things are really rough. But um, I want you to know that no matter what, I promise I will never commit suicide because I don't ever want to live my life without you. And I wouldn't want you to live your life without me. But about a week later on August 21st of 2012, I'm sitting in my living room. It's like two in the morning. And I had this thought that, you know what? Nothing's ever going to get any better. I was 30 years old. I already had erectile dysfunction. My living hurt emotionally, spiritually, physically. This wasn't a pre-planned thing. I, I hadn't like thought about how to do this or you know, when I was going to do it, but there was a, a, a pile of pills on my coffee table and I took them all and I attempted suicide by overdose. Gosh. And um, I can remember panicking like I've never panicked before. And I can remember as I started to, you know, cramp up and the black starts to fade in thinking as soon as this goes black, that's it. And I've never been so scared in my life. I woke up a few hours later in a puddle of vomit in a pile of fast food garbage surrounded by empty pill bottles in a boarded up apartment with no one around me, not because they didn't want to be there for me, but because I did everything I could to push everyone and everything out of my life till I was the only one in a dark, empty apartment dying at the age of 30 from a life of self-abuse, self-hatred and denial. And I had this very surreal moment where I came to a very clear understanding that if I didn't radically change the way that I moved through the world, my twin brother, my little sister, um, and my mom and my dad were going to spend every day of the rest of their lives um, trying to figure out why I needed to eat and drug myself to death. And I said, you know what? This phone call I'm about to make is for them. It's not for me yet. I didn't give, enough, I didn't give a shit about myself yet. But I picked up the phone and I called my mom and my dad and I asked for help. I simply said, they answered the phone. And I just, as quickly as I could said, I need help. They knew exactly what I meant. They didn't know the extent of the issues that I was dealing with. They knew, obviously, they knew there's a lot of things going on with me. And they asked me to pack a bag and come over to their house until we could figure this out. And two weeks later, they flew out to meet with me to Arizona so I could check myself into rehab. I can remember walking into the door of rehab with my mom and my dad at my side and watching the nurse come from the far end of the hallway where there's an area where you spend a minimum of 24 hours. It's where you're going to detox. You'll spend any, anywhere from one day to two weeks in there, depending on the severity of your detox. And then you'll go from there to sort of like, I guess you can call it like the general population of rehab. And I watched her walk this entire thing. It was very slow because I knew the minute she got there, that was it. That was, I was going to, you know, my life was about to change and I had no idea what it looked like. It was really scary. And she, you know, she came up and she was very gentle. She was very kind. She said, you know, are you ready? And I said, yes. And I turned and looked at my mom and, and my dad and my mom had tears coming down her face and she, you know, put her arms around my dad and my dad started crying. And, and I've only seen my dad cry a few times um, uh, when his mom died in that day. And, um, uh, I go back and they, they do a, a series of tests. They strip search you. They search your bags. Um, they want to make sure that one, you're not trying to bring anything in with you that you're not supposed to bring in. A lot of people try to sneak substances in and I completely understand that. I wasn't, I wasn't sober when I checked in. They want to know, you know, since people who, who struggle with substance abuse live high risk behaviors, 
They're going to do a series of medical tests on you to determine if you have any conditions you're not aware of. They're going to do psych evaluations. They're going to do a whole bunch of stuff. And it's, it's kind of dehumanizing. You kind of feel like a, a criminal. Um, I remember having to stand in a room with a doctor and nurses completely naked while they examined my body. And as a person who hated himself physically, this was one of the most, you know, um, uncomfortable things I've ever had to deal with. It was very humiliating. It was really important that they did this because I got a call from the doctor at like the 72 hour mark. And he said, you know, the note said that I had to go and talk to him. So I go back to the doctor and go and sit down in his office. And he said, you know, have a seat. We need to have a serious talk. And uh, I was diagnosed that day with type two diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, erectile dysfunction, bipolar disorder, suicidal depression, anxiety disorder, sleep disorder, and attention deficit disorder. Gosh. And, and so all of those you had been going undiagnosed, undiagnosed. Un- and unmedicated. Unmedicated for I don't know how long. I didn't know at the time, you know, that erectile dysfunction is the first indication for men of heart disease. I know that now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for me, it was like, well, I'm just completely broken as a human, as a man. Um, and uh, this doctor, you know, my blood pressure, when they did my blood pressure check day one was 210 over 100 and something. My resting heart rate was 120. Wow. Um, my A1C was close to 12. Um, so your body was, it was struggling. It was, it was struggling. I mean, they were so concerned with my chronic disease issues that they didn't even talk about my substance abuse. I mean, why would they? I'm not going to use in rehab. But uh, I, had to, I had to be monitored every morning and every night. My, my heart rate, my blood pressure, every morning and every night of every single day I was there, they were so concerned about my health. And I can remember being utterly destroyed emotionally in that moment because I thought, all right, I'm going to rehab. I'm going to get off the drugs and that's my road to recovery, right? And that entire, you know, idea had just been shattered. And I can remember feeling completely helpless and really, really, you know, just, I felt so sad with myself, with my life, because at this engine to immersion that I went to this retreat, I learned that these chronic health disorders are, these diseases are caused by our choices. This isn't genetic. I wasn't born this way. So I'm responsible. And I felt, you know, I felt really bad about it. And I left the doctor's office and I went back to the dorm and I picked up the phone. I called my dad and I told him I was leaving. I said, you know, I'm sorry, but I can't do this. I thought all I had to do was get off the drugs. Now they're telling me I have diabetes, I have heart disease. I have all these psychological conditions that I don't, I don't understand. I don't know how, what the road looks like for people who are bipolar or, or any of that stuff. It was really terrifying. Really what I was saying was I'm really scared and I'm too afraid to do this. And the conversation that I had with my dad on the phone that day is one of the most profound conversations I've ever had in my life. He comes to me and he says, or he didn't come to me, he was on the phone and he said, Adam, let's just say for the sake of argument that you have heart disease, that you have diabetes, that you have these psychological conditions that they're telling you about. That's okay. I'm not saying that you do, but let's just have, for the sake of this conversation, let's just discuss this. At the engine to retreat, you learn that most of these things are reversible. Not only did you learn that they're reversible, you learned how to reverse them. So let's just, let's just talk about this, Adam. If there's things about your life that make you unhappy or make you afraid and you can do something about it, then it's not a problem. If there are things in your life that make you uncomfortable and you can't do anything about it, then it's not a problem. It's just the way things are and we have to change the way you look at it. And what he helped me realize was that there's really nothing in life that's a problem 
and that I was the solution to any problem that I had in my life because I was the cause of it. It's empowering. It was really empowering. And in that moment, my relationship with my dad completely switched. He was no longer my adversary. He was my ally. And I told myself, okay, fine. These emotional and psychological and substance abuse problems that I have are real. I have them. That's okay. I'm not going to judge myself for them. But I also, I don't completely understand them in a way that I can track or manage it. But I know what I can do for my chronic health. I know it's trackable. I know it's measurable on a daily basis. This is something I can use to build a foundation for positive change on a daily basis. That is going to be my, my foundation for my road to recovery. Now in rehab, there's not a lot of, you know, you can do about changing the way you eat unless you let them know ahead of time, say, Hey, I have a specific diet that I follow. It's very hard to get the nutritionist to allow you to change your diet midway through. I was okay with that. I started seeing that personal trainer. I started to do things that made me uncomfortable for the purpose of personal growth. That was great. And at the end of rehab, they suggested that I move into a sober living facility in Southern California. And when I checked into sober living, I said, okay, this is great. This is where I'm going to actually start to, you know, put into practice some of the things I learned from RIP. I can remember getting up every single day pissed off because I would walk up to the, to the cabinet and this sober living facility, they got me everything I asked for, which was amazing because the food that they stocked there was not healthy. But when I asked for it, they got me what I needed. And I would go to the pantry. Which was like all, all whole food plants. Yeah, it was yeah. oatmeal. It was, you know, fruits. It was vegetables. And, you know, in the beginning, I didn't make a complete switch. Like the first, you know, like little part I was there, I, they, they had egg whites. And I was this like, was a transition. It was a transition. But I would get up in the morning. I would go to the pantry because I was living with 12 other guys who were, you know, in their mid-20s to early 30s who were all trying to, you know, recover. This is like a halfway house. And, and most of the people did not eat a healthy diet. And so they stocked whatever we wanted. So to open the pantry for breakfast, and there'd be two options staring me in the face. Fruity pebbles, which I loved, and oatmeal, which don't get me wrong. I like oatmeal and I liked it then. And I would have this internal struggle where I would say, okay, I know the consequences of choosing fruity pebbles. I know that if I make this choice, it's going to continue to fuel the disease. And more than likely, I was going to die because sobriety in and of itself for me was not a path to life. I was still going to die from my chronic health disorders if I didn't change the way that I moved through the world in a completely different way. I also knew if I choose oatmeal, it was going to make my life better. It was going to help me heal these, uh, these conditions that I have. It was going to create positive change. So why in the world would I be sitting there knowing these two things and still want the fruity pebbles? Why was this not a matter of intellect and will? Why could I not know what to do to better my life, want to do it, and then that's it? End of story. I know the right thing to do. That's what I'm going to do every single day. Why would I want what I know is killing me? And then I remember that the, one of the presentations that I heard at the immersion by Doug Lyle was called The Pleasure Trap. And I didn't remember it completely, but I knew the basis of it. And I found his TED Talk and I watched his TED Talk. And by the end of it, I felt so much shame left from me. I think everyone should watch that. I, I, I completely agree. Because what I learned is that there actually is a, a biological mechanism that compels us to seek out any behavior that creates an extreme dopamine response because our bodies believe it's biologically beneficial. That when I ate Fruity Pebbles, it created a dopamine response. It was so outside the bounds of the normal human experience that our, bodily, our body believes it has to be the right thing to do. Because pleasure is our body's way of letting us know that we've done something that it believes is biologically beneficial. So the more pleasure we receive from a behavior, the greater the compulsion to continue doing that behavior will be. And so here I am knowing that when I have an option between something that I know is going to be detrimental to my health 
and a choice like oatmeal, which is going to be beneficial, and I still want the fruity pebbles, it's not because there's something wrong with me. It's not because I'm broken. It's actually because my body is doing exactly what it's supposed to do, given the environment that I created for myself. And so I had this understanding that, all right, I'm not broken. I'm going to give myself the space and compassion to understand that the emotional response I'm getting from this food to want to continue doing something that I know is bad for me is okay because there's a biological mechanism to it. It's not because there's something wrong with me. And it it helped me understand that if I wanted to be successful, I was going to have to get up every single day and be willing to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And eventually I'll get up and it wouldn't be such a chore. And if I could be uncomfortable or comfortable being uncomfortable long enough, eventually I get up and I actually look forward. I would look forward to, the ch- to choosing the oatmeal. That day would come. It's a biological fact. So anybody on the outside looking in would say, okay, well, obviously he wants to do this because he's obese. He has heart disease and he nearly died from substance abuse. And those, those facts, those are facts. It's true. Those things did, did occur. And it's logical to think that those, are my, that those would be my reasons why I would be willing to be comfortable being uncomfortable. It couldn't be further from the truth. I told myself that my choices for changing my life were not going to be about anything I hated about myself. All right. Yeah, I was obese and I didn't want to be obese. That's true. I had heart disease and diabetes and you, you, be, you better believe I didn't want heart disease or diabetes. That's true. And I nearly died from substance abuse and I didn't want to die. Why not? What was it about my life that I loved enough that I was willing to be comfortable being uncomfortable? Not what I was, not what was it about my life that I hated enough? Because I, I can tell you for sure that I have always hated my way into incredibly destructive lifestyle choices. This was not about removing negativity from my life. This was about trying to bring in positivity more and more and more every single day until it just overwhelmed everything in my life. I don't believe that people remove negativity from their life. I think that they replace it with positivity. This was about love as a catalyst for lifetime, long-term change. This was not about hate and fear because I think fear can be a great catalyst for short-term change, but love is the strongest catalyst for long-term change. I wanted to love myself into a positive place. I didn't want to hate myself out of a, uh, out of a negative space. That was the difference. And I got up every single day and I learned that these food choices were simply daily acts of self-love and self-care. And within three months, my blood glucose, which my fasting blood glucose was 390 when I was diagnosed. Within three months, it was completely normal. And I started to go hypoglycemic because I was on the highest amount of metformin that they can prescribe somebody. And so I just stopped taking the medication, which I don't recommend people doing. Obviously, I want you to talk to your doctors. But it, it, it speaks to how powerful exactly. food can be. Exactly. And uh, I went to my endocrinologist at month four and we had done some blood work. He comes back in and he sits down and I can remember the look on his face. And he looked at me and he said, you know, your A1C means you're no longer diabetic. That must have been just a moment. It was an incredibly surreal experience to know that, um, you know what I felt in that moment? I felt something that I hadn't felt in a long time, self-worth. And I stood up and I shook the doctor's hand and I said, thank you so much for your services, but I no longer need them. And I walked out of his office and I felt so empowered because that self-worth that I was feeling for the first time in a long time made me feel like I was worth saving for the first time in a long time. Made me feel like I was actually in control and it helped me realize that the only reason I was able to actually change my life is because at every single moment in my life, I was always been complete and enough. And I've always been everything I needed to be to change my life. Otherwise, nothing would be possible. 
If I wasn't everything I needed to be to be the best and most authentic version of myself, I could never be that. And it helped me learn that getting up every single day and making these choices, that this was really, a, a, you know, really a bridge sort of building this, this, this pathway back to my authentic self. I wasn't becoming a new version of myself. I was becoming the authentic version of the person I've always been. And that was the biggest thing for me was to realize that I'm going to stop judging myself for feeling urges and temptations and cravings that life for me in recovery is not about reaching a point to where I never have urges or temptations or cravings or anger or sadness or fear, but to have them and be okay with them to recognize that I'm going to allow these emotions and these feelings to happen and give them just as much space and compassion as I do feelings of joy and happiness and sat and, 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 and excitement because these feelings that I have are equally human and equally healthy as all experiences and all emotions that, that humans have. And that to judge them or try and diagnose them is to make them, is to take the humanity out of it. And I wanted to be able to move through this world in a truly authentic way where I'm okay with these things. That was going to be my road to recovery. And in about 10 months, I'd lost over hundred pounds. And in a year I was off all of my psych meds. So all my antidepressants, my mood stabilizers, my sleeping medications, my anxiety medications, and my ADHD medications. It, I mean, it's incredible. It, how, how did this this sort of change in in self worth sure to then affect your relationships with your family, right? Which you you spoke to before being yeah. that was your initial why of going into rehab, right? Yeah. It was for them. So how how did this self discovery? then translate to your experiences or your relationships with your family? Well, I can remember uh, at about month six when my dad came in to meet with, I was going to this um, program called an intensive outpatient therapy program. And it's essentially, I did this for four months where you go to group therapy for about three to five hours a day, five days a week. And this is really where I learned a lot of the, the, um, the tools that I put into practice for self-compassion, distress tolerance, emotional regulation, a lot of stuff that they call dialectical behavioral therapy. And it really gave me the, the tools I needed to create space to look at my, the way my, my parents communicated with me um, without judgment. And my dad was there at month six and we went in to talk with the therapist. And in that moment, I stopped the therapist from talking. I stopped my dad from talking. I said, dad, I want to say something to you. I want to apologize to you for not understanding the way that you wanted to show your love for me. Because I realized that when my dad was criticizing my food choices as a kid, he was saying, I lost my dad because of an illness. And you matter so much to me that I don't want that to happen. I don't want to see you get taken from my life because I love you so much. He didn't have the tools to say, Adam, I love you. And what you're doing, the behaviors that you're engaging in scare me. Can we maybe try to develop behaviors of eating other things? Because I think that it will help you and I want you with me as long as possible. Maybe he didn't have the tools to do that and I don't want to judge him for it. But what I do want to do is say that I get it and I love you for it. And the reason that I reacted in the way that I did is because I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. And I, I apologize to you for not being able to understand it. And that really helped us sort of mend our relationship. I did the same thing for my, for my mom, did the same thing for my sister and for my brother. And my sister who hadn't talked to me in probably two years was in the audience when I got my one-year sober chip. She and I have an incredible relationship. 
she's an amazing person. My parents and I, my mom and my dad, I have a photo, two photos in my, uh, my apartment. I'm a minimalist, so I don't have a lot of things, but I do have these two photos. One is a photo that's taken by my mom as, and it's a photo of my dad and I as we're walking into the doors of rehab. And then I have a photo next to it that was taken by my mom as she watched my dad and I run the race in Austin three years later, <laughs> because they literally walked the entire path with me. Even though I had given up completely on myself, and even though I directed all my anger and hatred towards them, they never gave up on me. They never stopped loving me. No matter, I mean, I cannot imagine how hard it must have been to love me at that point in that time, to, to allow the things I was doing to them to happen and go, I get it. Mm. He's not himself. He's not living his authentic self. This is not entirely him. We're going to love him regardless. And we're going to wait as long as it takes to get him back. And I mean, it's, that's easier said than oh. done, right? You know, addictions tear families apart. They do. And, you know, the thing is, is that there's a, there's a great, maybe you've heard of him, this British journalist, Johan Hari. And I love what he says about addiction. And I see a lot of the way that we treat addiction in this country, we're treating dependency rather than the true cause of addiction. Like, so for example, if I were to take you and give you heroin for an extended period of time and then take that heroin away from you, more than likely you'll go through withdrawals and those withdrawals will be painful. And if someone looking out will go, oh, he's an addict, he's addicted to heroin. No, you're not, you're dependent upon it. And that's why that withdrawal is so painful because you become chemically dependent upon the heroin. Addiction is a disconnection from what is truly meaningful in life. And when those bonds to what is truly meaningful, those bonds to people, to purpose, to the goings on in the world around us, when those bonds are severed, we will bond with anything that gives us pleasure, whether it's food, whether it's sex, whether it's a bag of smack, because that pleasure allows us to fill that void, to allow us to no longer be able to be present in a life that's become too painful. And the further that bond or the stronger that that bond to those substances like food, sex, and drugs become the further disconnected we feel from ever being able to reconnect to what's truly meaningful in life. And once that happens, we are now addicted to that substance, whatever it is, whether it's gambling, whether it's, like I said, whatever it is, the substance, the behavior that causes pleasure. Dependency is a symptom of addiction. And I truly think that um, if we started to look at the way that we treat, and this is, I get all this from Johan Hari, he's really brilliant when he says that if we look at the way that we treat addiction in this country, we are making the situation worse because what we're doing is we are separating people from their communities. We're putting them into this place and we're saying, you're an addict and you're always going to be an addict. And what that does is that means that, okay, so I'm an addict because I've always been an addict. Therefore, my pain means nothing. That these experiences that I was having, this disconnection from, from the things that were truly meaningful is no longer valid. I, don't, I, don't, I personally don't agree with that. Like, and, for example, when I was diagnosed with um, you know, severe depression and bipolar disorder, um, which turned out to be a chemically induced bi bipolar disorder, they put me on medication for life. That was their goal. They said, all right, this is because this chemical is going like this, blah, 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 blah. We're going to give you this medication to correct it. That's it end of depression, right? This medication will be your answer. No, it's not. That depression I was experiencing was completely valid. That pain I was experiencing meant something. It makes sense. The life I was living was painful. And the pain I was experiencing was my body's way of saying, look at what's going on. Look at the disconnection from your authentic self that is happening. It's a signal that's arising from our body to tell us something very, very meaningful. And I completely agree with Johan Hari's work on that. And, and I think that if we, were to able, if we were able to look 
and as a culture be willing to understand understand pain more authentically and see it as a as a healthy human experience we we would have a completely different look on how we treat mental health in this country and i i mean i think that extends to sort of the, the catalyst of your journey which was when you were a child yeah. and you were prescribed with ritalin yeah right and again that sort of that reinforced that there was something wrong right and and also would have i guess separated you from other kids yeah exactly it told me that there was something broken in me that needed to be fixed when there's never been anything wrong with who or what I am, that maybe the way that I move through the world is going to be a little bit different from the person next to me. And that's okay. But unfortunately I didn't fit into a system that works really well for people who operate in a certain way and maybe not so well for people who operate in a different way, but neither of those people are broken. There isn't one that's, that is, you know, healthy and one that isn't. There's just two ways of moving through the world that need to be observed and, and, uh, and looked at differently, not medicated to try and fix one to make it more like the other. So talk to me, is that something that you've looked into more, you know, regarding your child and, and kids in similar situations yeah. and, you know, not judging the, the doctor that you saw oh, or yeah. anything, because again, it comes down to tools in the toolbox. Absolutely. And, I don't judge, and, and, I try not to judge anyone. And, and, but, but what, what approach would you like to see in that situation? Well, one, I just, I don't believe it for the most part. And, uh, you know, I don't believe in absolutes entirely, but for the most part, I don't believe that any child should be on a, a mind altering medication. We have these developing brains. We have a, we have an environment to where we are so disconnected from the way that we authentically move through the world. We don't spend enough time in nature you know, we're earth connected animals, just like every other non-human animal on this planet. And yet we've walled ourselves away from our natural home, but behind concrete and glass. Uh, we don't allow our feet to touch the earth. For the majority of our lives, we wear shoes. We will not touch the earth to which we are dependent upon. We will not look at trees for the most of the time because we're going to be in buildings. We will not be under the sunlight for the most of the time because we will be inside. And yet we wonder why by the time we're, we have the mental capacity to sort of contemplate our place in the world, we feel lost. Why there's such a sense of disconnection and why whenever we have the opportunity to get away, we go vacation in nature. And why we feel so refreshed when we come back. We have a serious problem of disconnection in our culture. And I think that when we diagnose children at a young age as behaving outside of the norm, it's, it's you know, like you say, all, all my kid wants to do is go run around outside. Of course he does. He's a human. He's an earth-connected human who wants to go home. I think that what we have to do is we have to look at, say, all right, so he is he experiencing these sort of behaviors. He or she, this child is experiencing these behaviors. What can we do in regards to his or her environment? How can we change the environment to better suit their needs? What are we feeding them? How much time are we putting them in front of devices? How much time are we allowing them outside? What kind of meaningful connections are we having with as parents with our children? How, what kind of meaningful conversations are we having? Are we just educating and correcting? Or are we having open emotional connection with children? And when once those things have been addressed, if nothing changes, then have another conversation about you know medication or whatever. But there's so many symptoms that go into a diagnosis of ADHD that sort of say, all right, well, this person is not concentrating in class. Okay, what can we do to sort of change the environment to where when he is in school, he's able to, or he or she is able to say, all right, this moment is just for learning. And I know that when I get home, I will be able to run around outside and get dirty mm -hmm. and connect to nature. I just think that to treat everyone the same way with the same medication is a lazy approach to treatment. 
and and I've I've heard you say it before, and I think it really it it applies to to all, everything we're talking about. But labels and and defining people yeah. by their struggle. Can you can yeah. you elaborate on on why why you feel you know so strongly about that? Yeah, I um I've never defined myself by what I struggle with, you know, and I don't, you know, th- there's there's a. Uh, a real sense of uh, in the recovery commun- community to do to say that once an addict, always an addict. I've never been an addict. I've struggled with addiction in the same way I struggled with diabetes. I struggled with depression. I think that we define ourselves by what we struggle with so much in the moment. People say, I am sad. I am angry. I am depressed. I am anxious. Rather than giving themselves the space and compassion to say, I feel angry. I feel sad. I feel depressed. When it's a feeling, then it's an observation and it's an opportunity to say, okay, I'm feeling this, this emotion, which is completely human and completely healthy. It means something. How can I use this as a signal to say this moment is significant? My body is saying there's something meaningful in my life that I'm disconnected from or something that isn't, align- isn't in alignment with my authentic way of moving through the world. How can I sit and breathe, observe this moment, move through it instead of trying to avoid it? Instead of trying to fight it, instead of trying to medicate it and numb it, how can I move through it in a way to gain a greater understanding of myself, how I move through the world with positivity and respond to it rather than react to it? I think that if we did that, that we would have greater compassion for ourselves as humans and stop trying to fix what is uncomfortable because what is uncomfortable is also human. And so I know I get a lot of people don't like to hear me say this, but I don't think anybody is an addict. And I, like, I know it's controversial, but this is just the way that I feel. I don't believe I am an addict. I know for a fact I was going to die from addiction if I didn't, you know, really come to terms with it. But I don't believe defining ourselves by what we struggle with is healthy. It can become very self-limiting. It's not who and what I am. It's what I've struggled with. And if I say it's what I've struggled with, it can also be what I thrive with. It can be a source of positive change. I can say, all right, this is, how I, this is how I respond to life when things gets really, really rough for me. I will find substances and behaviors to get myself out of that moment. And maybe that's not the best thing for me to do. But it also allows me the opportunity to say that, okay, when I connect to something, man, I really connect to it. What if I were to fall in love with the behaviors that bring positive change in my life in the same way that I needed those behaviors that, that got me out of life, those destructive behaviors? What if instead of saying, all right, I'm going to go for example, whole food plant-based because I want to reverse diabetes, reverse disease, which was what I said people would probably say I was trying to do. What if I said I was doing it because I wanted to be the most authentic version of myself? What if I found a reason about my life that I loved enough and then just focus on the behaviors that bring those things into my life? Because I'll tell you this, if you focus on the behaviors that bring positive change and you fall in love with those behaviors, the rest of your life will take care of itself in the time that's right for you. If you're trying to reverse diabetes, eat a low-fat, whole food, plant-based diet, find a way to fall in love with putting those foods on your plate. If you do that, the diabetes will take care of itself. And not only that, you'll probably eat that diet for the rest of your life because you've fallen in love with it. You don't have to worry about the rest of your life. The moment right now you are in love with this behavior it is connected to you. It is part of how you move through the world. Focus on the behaviors rather than the results in all aspects of your life. And for me, that's really worked. I'm not trying to be sober for the rest of my life. I'm not trying to be whole food plant-based for the rest of my life. All I'm trying to do is connect and fall in love with the things that are bringing the most positivity into the way that I move through the world right now. 
And for me right now, that is not using, well, I, I wouldn't say abstaining from, but for me right now, that is eating a plant-based diet that is moving my body with purpose, that is mindfulness meditation, and that is, and that is practicing compassion whenever possible. I'm not avoiding meat, eggs, dairy, and drugs. I am accepting compassion, mindfulness, movement, and food. That is the way that I think that recovery works best for me. I've lost 200 pounds as of now. I work with Rip Esselstyn. I'm a speaker for Engine 2. I have, you know, my brother was 280 pounds in 2016. He was a type 2 diabetic. I saw a photo of you. I didn't know you had a twin brother. And yeah. you put a photo up and yeah. your arm, you had your arm around your brother. Mm-hmm. And I thought you'd edited a photo of yourself <laughs> from three years ago with you. And I was like, wow, this is a really good Photoshop. Yeah. So tell me, tell me about your brother's story. So in 2016, uh, he weighed about 280-ish pounds. He was a type 2 diabetic. And I, you know, I, I went to him and said, Bobby, will you, can I give you a gift? Um, I would love for you to move in with me in Santa Monica. I was still living in Santa Monica at the time. And just to live my life for six months. So you were worried about him? I was worried very much so. He's very depressed. He was sort of mourning this. Uh, he was sort of mourning the idea that he would never become the environmental filmmaker that he wanted to be because he was so depressed. He was so disconnected from what was truly meaningful to him, his purpose. He agreed. He agreed to move in with me. And we went and we saw Dr. Matt Letterman from Forks Over Knives on January 4th of 2016. We did all of his blood work and we had a conversation with Matt. And Matt asked me what we were going to be doing. I told him, I said, look, he's going to be eating an entirely whole food plant-based diet. Or I'm going to take him to the gym. We're going to move. We're going to practice self-compassion. We're going to meditate, all these things. And Matt Letterman said, Bobby, do you have your diabetes medication? Bobby handed it to him. And he goes, yeah, you no longer need this. Day one, you no longer need this. Throw it away. And in six weeks, Bobby's blood glucose was completely normal, completely healthy. He's lost 100 pounds as of now. Wow. Not only that. He works with Sean Munson, the director of Earthlings. Um, they are making a film together. Bobby's a producer and cinematographer on his new film called Overhaul, which is incredible. Bobby's at the, the slaughterhouse vigils three days a week. He's rescued animals from trucks. He has really become this really influential voice in the animal rights movement. Mm-hmm. And Sounds like he's very inspired. The greatest moment in my entire recovery um, happened when, uh, I think it was um, 2017, um, right before I moved out to go move back to Austin, Texas, I got offered the opportunity to work for Whole Foods Market's Total Health Immersions Program, which is the program that puts on like the Engine 2 retreats and the Dr. McDougal and Dr. Stoll. And we offer the opportunity for our team members to go through the same type of program that I went through to take charge of their life. And Bobby had been, you know, really, I saw this light come back in his eyes and we had spent some time living in Nepal together in an orphanage and he'd really recaptured his life. And he came to me and he's a poet, he's a philosopher, he's a boxer. He's like this true Renaissance man. He's a painter, he's an illustrator, but it's funny because he's so introverted, you never know it. He comes to me and he uh, puts his hand around my shoulder and he says, you know, I want to tell you something. I may not make it through this, but um, Joseph Campbell, who's a philosopher, Joseph Campbell says that um, people are not so much looking for the meaning of life as much as they are the experience of being alive. And that's what you've given back to me. And in that moment, I know I knew that I had finally achieved what I wanted to achieve when I started uh, my path to recovery, which was to be my authentic self. Because by simply being with my brother and giving him entirely everything that I have, not wanting anything from him, just giving him me, 
not trying to take things from people, not trying to get him to listen to me, give to me, 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 but just be with him and allow myself to influence him. He was able to completely change his life. And I knew that I had finally become my authentic self because my brother means everything to me. And I'm so proud of everything that he's done. I really, you know, it really speaks to this idea that ego is maybe the worst thing a person can have in recovery. Because I know that I would, in the very beginning, I would get into a lot of fights with my house manager because I needed to be right. Because if someone else was right, then I was wrong. And I was so determined to be right all the time that I would never give myself the opportunity to learn a damn thing. And when I stopped trying to be right all the time and just allowed myself to be in the moment, I was able to learn more about myself than I've ever learned in my entire life. And I can tell you this, once I finally was able to stop trying to be right and just create behaviors that brought in positive change, at the end of the day, I didn't give a shit who was right or who was wrong. And my house manager sure didn't care. He didn't come up to me and go, I told you so. He came up to me and said, boy, man, look what you're doing. You know, it's just like, and I saw the same thing happen with my brother. In the beginning, he was angry. He was angry because he wanted something or someone to blame for his situation in life. And once he stopped doing that and he just accepted that he's going to try this, it doesn't have to work. He just, he just has to try it. If, it. if he finds joy in doing it and it brings positivity, I'm going to keep doing it. If it doesn't work where I don't find joy in it, we're going to find something else that's in alignment with what we're trying to achieve. And then I'll go another, say, seven days. I know that my journey, I, I really believe that my brother's journey has been nothing more than a series of seven-day experiments. And we've just been going on and going on and going on. It's not about the rest of our lives. It's what can we do right now to continue moving forward with progress. I love it. I mean, what you're talking about there is very much that notion of we, we grow so much if when we become vulnerable. Exactly. And yeah. Vulnerability is... It's just, it's essential because when you, if you put up a facade or, or your ego is too strong, you don't allow yourselves to get into the position for growth. That's it. 100%. I, I read Brene Brown's book, The Power of Vulnerability. That first year I was getting sober, that, that book had a lot of impact on me. And one of the things I'm, there's two things I'm involved in, in right now that really I'm just so proud to be a part of. One is we talked about uh, mastering diabetes. Robbie is one of my best friends. Cyrus is one of my best friends. What are you friends. doing with those guys? So I'm a diabetes and food addiction coach with Mastering Diabetes. So I, I help people uh, to reverse type 2 diabetes, uh, reverse insulin resistance. This is what our goal is, to help people learn how to reverse insulin resistance through the use of low-fat, whole-food, plant-based nutrition. And I also help people overcome their struggles with food addiction because people think that they're addicted to food when really they're addicted to the behavior that gets them out of the experience of life that's too painful for them try to help people understand that people believe that they're addicted to these things because like what we talked about earlier, they believe they're broken. That there's some willpower issue that they don't, that, that, that's lacking in them. And I really help them understand that, that, that actually the experiences that they're having, the feelings that they're having aren't because they're broken. We don't feel because we're broken. We feel because we're whole, that there's nothing wrong with any of these people and try to get them to have the compassion to experience those feelings and be okay with it and then still make the choice that's in alignment with reversing their insulin resistance and bringing positivity into their life. And the other thing that I'm probably most proud of is I founded a, um, a nonprofit called Plant-Based for Positive Change. 
and we're doing the very first research study on the effects of plant-based nutrition and early addiction recovery. Wow. Yeah. So tell me about that. When's that? Is that started or it's going to start in August? That's so cool. Where's that? Where's that being based out of? In Austin, Texas, there's a treatment facility called Infinite Recovery, and they own every stage of the continuum of care. So from detox, residential treatment center, sober living, IOP, PHP, which is partial hospitalization program, and then out. I partnered with uh, Northern Arizona University's um, health science research team. And we really designed this really beautiful study design where we are going to use a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diet. In fact, doctors Dean and Aisha Sherzai, who you've met with recently, they're helping me with the study. We're going to do everything from microbiome samples to obviously full blood workups, but we're going to do specifically uh, high-sensitivity C-reactive protein. We're going to do regular, using validated scales of measuring anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive drug use, plus also resiliency and spiritual growth. Gosh, this so is going to be yeah, it's an, gonna an be, amazing set of data. It's going to be amazing. I'm, and one of the best things that I get to do it with one of my best friends in the world is Tara Kemp, who is one of the PhD students on the research team. And she is, if there's one person I know is in complete alignment with how I feel about self-love and self-compassion, it's Tara. She's one of the most incredible people on the planet. And being able to do this study with her is just, it's going to be, I mean, I'm so excited about it. I can't wait. It blew my mind when we started researching. We're looking for previous research in the same you know, idea. What we're doing is we're, we're studying the effects of diet on those first six months of recovery. So we're going to do a 10-week intervention, three weeks in the residential treatment center, and then an additional seven in sober living, and then do a six-month and one-year follow-up. And is it is there control? Is there a control diet? There is a control diet. So we're gonna the standard diet that's used in recovery is just your standard amount. So people would just be randomized. Yeah, it's exactly. It's yeah. a randomized controlled trial. But what's amazing is when we were looking to see the previous research, there's never been a study ever on the effects of diet and early addiction recovery ever done. Wow. Isn't that mind blowing? That they never thought to study the effects of what we put into our body as it affects recovering from things we put in our body. And so I cannot wait for this to happen. We're, you know, we just, we just submitted our IRB. We, you know, have the contract with NAU and then we're going to start recruiting in August and it's going to be incredible. We'll, uh, we'll have to do a follow-up episode when the, when the data is available. Definitely. And we'll, yeah. We can, we can share that. Let's, to close this one out, if, sure. if someone is listening and they're experiencing symptoms of depression, mm perhaps maybe even having suicidal thoughts. Sure. What's, what's your message to them? The first and foremost thing is if this is something that you're truly struggling with, if you're having suicidal thoughts, if you're struggling with severe depression, please get in contact with somebody. There are resources out there that require zero commitment from you. You can call these uh, resources. You can talk to somebody. You don't have to pay a thing. You don't have to commit to recovery, but please talk to a professional. The second thing I want people to understand is that more than likely, the majority of the pain you're feeling is a misunderstanding of how we move through the world as an authentic person. And that most people who struggle with depression, there's nothing wrong with them whatsoever. And I really want people to know that, that when we feel broken, it's, it's a feeling, it's not a fact. That for the most part, I would say that the majority of people, there's absolutely nothing wrong with who they are for feeling depressed, feeling anxious, feeling sad, or even feeling suicidal. And we need to understand that. Because if they weren't everything that they need to be and everything they've ever needed to be, recovery would never be possible for anyone. And everything that I've achieved in my life, anybody else is capable of achieving. 
There's nothing special about me. I'm not like, you know, a celebrity who had opportunities and trainers and whatever. I'm not, you know, this, this superhuman person. I'm not, you know, an elite athlete or anything like that. I simply got up every single day. And the reason why I was able to do this, and I've been able to continue doing this every single day is because I found a reason strong enough to want to. If you give yourself the opportunity to discover that, everybody is capable of doing exactly what I was capable of doing. There's nothing that separates me from anyone else. Adam, thank you so much for, My pleasure. for joining me and being so raw and speaking about your your journey so openly. Yeah. It's, um, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. But oh, thank you. It's, it, it's, the, the message is just so powerful and I'm glad that you're devoting your life now to to sharing that message and, and helping other people. So thank you very much. I really appreciate everything it. that you're doing. Yeah. I'd love to to share um, the, we have a GoFundMe campaign for the research study. So if, if I could share that link with Let's you, do it. put it yeah. in the show notes. In the show notes, we'll, yeah. we'll have, we'll have some links to that. We can do some links to you know, the non-for-profit and, and whatever, whatever else is love it. going to help people. And then if, if someone wants to connect with you, sure. Where can they where can they find you? Where can they sort of you know watch your journey from here? Sure. So uh, I'm on Instagram at Plant Based Addict. I'm also I have a Facebook page by the same name, Plant Based Addict. Um, I work with Mastering Diabetes, so you can go to MasteringDiabetes.org. You know we have retreats. You can come meet me in person. I'm going to be speaking at Plant Stock in August. I'm really excited. This is going to be my fourth time speaking there. Uh, that's an engine to event. It's really amazing. It's this like three day festival with incredible people. So if you want to come meet me in person, hear me share my story in person, go to engine2.com, go to events and sign up for plant stock. I think we have like 300 spots still left. Get so, down there guys, yeah. get down there. And finally, you mentioned engine two. I'm yeah. seeing Rip in a week and a half. Yeah. He wants to do the run, swim, run, swim <laughs> in an hour down in Austin there. I'll come cheer you guys <laughs> have you, on. Have you got any tips for me? <laughs> Uh, he's competitive. <laughs> That's to say the least. Um, don't beat him because that run and swim will never end. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks very much, Adam. Oh, my pleasure, man. Pleasure. Hey, friends, Simon here. What did I tell you? Such a brave and authentic person. I feel so fortunate that I was able to have that conversation with Adam and most of all, to be able to share it with you. It certainly inspired me, particularly to think more about self-acceptance, and, and I'm sure that it did for you too. Also, this is another story that highlights the power of plants, which is a great follow-on from the Drew Harrisburg and Mastering Diabetes episodes that went into detail on how plant-based diets are beneficial for someone with diabetes. If you haven't listened to those episodes, I strongly encourage you to. That's all for today, folks. If you did enjoy the conversation with Adam, please share your feedback on social media, DM or tag us in your story. We'd love to hear from you. Also, if you haven't yet and have a spare minute, I would be so grateful if you could leave a quick review for the show on iTunes. Thanks, friends. I look forward to catching you in the next episode. Until then, have a good week and most importantly, have fun.